Hi, Tizzy. Hi, Will. This is our last interview. Um, and it's actually a bonus conversation um, that's going to take a little bit different form than our previous discussions. So Tizzy and I are going to spend a little bit of time setting up this conversation. Um, and I'll just start with this. We have learned so much from each interview individually. And I, I think I've listened to all of them at least three times. And I take something new from you know every, every new listen. Um, and so individually, we've learned a lot. But additionally, there's some really powerful themes and lessons from the interviews collectively. Um, and I, we just have to start here and say, we are so grateful for the time, knowledge, expertise, experience, and, advi and advice of those who chatted with Tizzy and I throughout the process. These conversations were so informative and so fun, um, but it is important to note that there are so many more coalitions and leaders who are doing really meaningful work who we didn't get to talk to. Um, all that is to say that there's a lot left to learn in this space. Will, you're so right. And I too wanna to echo uh, my gratitude and appreciation. Uh, this has been an amazing journey that we've been on these last couple of months. So for this final interview, we are so pleased to spend some time with Justin Scar. He's a true expert in drowning prevention partnership and collaboration, as well as being a leader in drowning prevention efforts in Australia and globally. And for this conversation, we realized that instead of focusing exclusively on the Australian experience, we wanted to look more broadly at some of the takeaways we heard from all of the interviews and reflect on these topics with Justin as a thought leader in this space. We also want you to know Justin is our friend and colleague as well. And we've worked with him and we've had fun with him and we just felt like this brought even more meaning to the conversation to be able to spend time together. All right, well, as we prep for this conversation with Justin, what else do we need to know? Okay, so some logistical context. Tizzy and Justin and I had several discussions uh, before our conversation on how to frame this uh, and what we wanted to accomplish. Uh, in that process, Justin actually listened to every interview that we have done. So he's stepping into this, having already listened to all the interviews. And from there, he provided us with a really thoughtful written reflection. And we based our conversation around a few major themes. And those include framing the issue from multiple perspectives, multiple stakeholders, leadership, and coalition architecture and strategy. And while we focus more on these broader themes that we heard in the other interviews, Justin also brings in his perspective and a few examples from the Australian experience. So in the interview, you're gonna hear a couple things. Uh, Justin does briefly mention the UN resolution on global drowning prevention, which the United Nations General Assembly passed just a few months ago. Uh, there has been years of advocacy around elevating drowning prevention on a global stage. Uh, and I, I'd highly recommend that you uh, look a little bit more into that process and how the UN resolution um, has opened new doors for those working in drowning prevention. 
One other term that you're going to hear Justin use is uh, ministry. So when Justin uses the term ministry, he's referring to a government department. So he might say something like the ministry of health. Uh, for, the, for us in the States, uh, just replace that word with department. So health department, transportation, ministry, transportation department. The ministry is just a government department. And there's one other term, NGO. That stands for a non-governmental organization and basically refers to any organization that's not part of government. That could be a nonprofit, a community-based organization, or a foundation as examples. And so now it is my great pleasure to shift us into our reflection conversation with Justin Scar. Justin, Tizzy and I are so happy to spend some time with you today reflecting on lessons learned from the interviews with state water safety coalition leaders. We are so grateful for you and your work and your leadership in global water safety um, and for the time that you spent listening to the interviews and your willingness to chat with us today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to digging into some of your insights and reflections from those interviews uh, and more broadly, your thoughts and perspectives on drowning prevention partnerships and collaboration. So for those listening, Justin Scar is the Chief Executive Officer of the Royal Life Saving Society Australia. He is the Chair of the Australian Water Safety Council and has been the convener of multiple world conferences on drowning prevention. Justin is a leading advocate and an expert in the development of drowning prevention partnerships at local, national, and global scales, and has served in a variety of roles advising global drowning prevention initiatives with the World Health Organization, uh, the Bloomberg Foundation, and other international non-governmental groups. Uh, on top of all of this, Justin is working on a PhD at the George Institute of Global Health in Sydney, uh, and his project is focused on drowning prevention partnerships. So Justin, I'm hoping we can start off by having you describe quickly how you got into water safety and yeah, kind of what your entry path was. Uh, look, thanks for the introduction, Will. It's, uh, it's, it makes me sound like uh, my life is all about water safety and drowning prevention, but absolutely no fun at a dinner party, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but look, it's, it's, really, it's really great to join the podcast. I've really been enjoying um, all of the, the interviews that you've been doing. But my, my drowning prevention story is, uh, um, is it's not really all that impressive. Um, I was a school teacher once upon a time. Um, I took off traveling around the, around the globe. Um, when I was uh, traveling, I, I went to some wonderful places, including Vietnam. Um, and then um, when I came back to reality and needed to find another job, I decided I wasn't going to be a school teacher. Um, the Royal Life Saving Society Australia uh, had a friend. I had a friend working there and they had been approached by the Australian government to help with a lifeguard program in Vietnam, in Da Nang, Vietnam, in fact. Um, and so, uh, you know, the people there hadn't left the country, um, you know, and they needed someone who had some context to Vietnam. Um, and so I met with them a few times just to give them a little bit of background on the country and, uh, and all of its wonderful elements in, in those stages. Um, and they offered me a job and, and here I am probably 25 years later. Um, I've had um, some really wonderful experiences both domestically and also internationally. Um, it, uh, the, 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 the project that I thought I'd be working on back in 1998 was cancelled and it took me another 12 years to get back to Vietnam, where we hosted the World Conference on Drowning Prevention in Vietnam. 
um, and, and you know have a real energy for the global perspective. That was a, a certainly a real eye opener. Was um, being introduced to um, the work in Bangladesh from uh, Dr. Amina Rahman at the Center for Injury Prevention in about 2003 and four. And for me, that was a real game changer. Um, before that, I thought I was very much a water safety guy. I'm very passionate about swimming and water safety. I think the Bangladesh experience gave me a sense of the magnitude of drowning, um, but also a public health approach, um, working with um, the Alliance for Safe Children over those years in, in building that program and, um, and uh, sort of opened up my eyes to the possibility for um, working with a range of stakeholders and sectors to solve problems that we're all collectively very passionate about. Well, thank you for that. And yeah, thanks for your work in this space over the past, yeah, that couple decades now. Something that I've heard you say before um, that I'd like you to kind of describe a little bit is I've heard you advocate in other spaces that we need a platform for drowning prevention. So I'm wondering if you would describe what is a platform for drowning prevention and why do we need one? Yeah, I, I guess my, my version of a platform is, is it's more of a stage than table. I've, I heard many of your coalitions talk about this notion of a table and bringing people, uh, other stakeholders, sectors to a table to debate and talk. Um, I think my version of a platform is a little bit broader than just a table to discuss plans. I think a platform includes, um, you know, clarity of vision and mission. It, inclu it includes... Um, uh, some sense of strategy, and I, I see strategy different to planning. Um, I think lots of coalitions have plans, but they sort of lack a little bit of clarity around the strategy. Um, and then there's got to be room enough on this platform for, for, um, for all of the groups that are currently playing in the water safety drowning prevention world, um, but all of those not yet currently engaged or playing. Um, and in many respects, those sectors are far more important than the ones that are currently engaged in the issues. So, um, so when we talk about a global platform to reduce drowning, it was, uh, it was a solid foundation. It was uh, you know, a stage that, that provided opportunities for everyone. We had clarity of vision and strategy and purpose. Um, and you know, there's a table there somewhere and that table, you know, it's, it's a metaphor for the governance of, of this platform. Um, We've used, um, in many cases, we've talked about a global partnership. Um, you know, you interviewed Steve Beam, and he's certainly um, collectively, you know, very passionate about this idea globally to create an architecture where um, all groups, irrespective of their, you know, the common thread is here, we're all, we all want to reduce drowning. We all want to prevent drowning, but we bring a very different um, collection of uh, experiences, um, a very different collection of sciences, um, a very different collection of ideologies in many respects. And we need to create forums where um, we can all get together and work and, and, and harness our energy and strengths. And um, there's got to be a good balance between the, the, the passions of the NGO sector, their ability to mobilise, you know, people in the field, lifeguards, swimming instructors, um, with the interests of the academic sector. Um, and then, of course, none of this will work without government buying in and leaning in for that matter, not just buying in, but leaning in. It's not just their money we want, um, it's, it's their transformative power in terms of policy and, um, and, and making things happen at a, at a system level that's really valuable and important. I really sort of drew a lot of energy from your coalition interviews because, you know, a lot of my, my time is spent pondering this at a global level, um, but I think you give some really good examples of, you know, the sort of transformation that can happen when um, water safety planning and coordination is localised. So many of your coalition examples really had some power 
um, were really strongly nested down at that local community. And they were doing the sorts of things we've been talking about globally, but doing it in the context of their local communities and then building up. So that grassroots approach, um, I, found that, I found that came out really strongly in a couple of the example podcasts. And gosh, that just really speaks to thinking about what the role is of a state coalition or network versus a local level. I wondered if we can stay on this platform concept for a, a little bit longer and talk about the actual stakeholders involved. And um, you used a term when we were getting ready for our, our discussion today, positionality. And I realized I wasn't even sure what you meant by that. And was it around formal and informal positions or who may be coming in, who is a, an executive director versus the, the, the lifeguard who's there at the beach responding? And, and so it made me think of all kinds of things around those stakeholders who are involved. And I wondered if you could speak to that. Um, yeah, look, I think I made the word up. I'm not sure. I should Google it. But um, I guess what I was trying to explain is that that all of your podcasts um, were really, the first thing I got from them was um, an understanding that the, um, um, the, the position of the individual talking, and I don't mean their role or title or that they were the president of the, the Water Safety Coalition, but, but essentially where they stood and where they looked at the problem and the solution that position um, was very, very different. Um, and so, you, you know, you had Ralph Gotto with tremendous mana um, um, and, 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 you know, he was adaptive in a sense that he, you know, he wanted his service to take, um, uh, adopt sort of a, a proactive preventional approach. So, um, and then you had like a, you know, uh, Tony, I think it was at a real public health perspective. So, you know, um, you know, Ralph, as an example, is sitting there, sorry, standing there watching water safety. He's, he's initially looking at it from a lifeguard perspective. Um, uh, Tony is looking at it from a very um, a public health perspective. Um, and then you had some other examples where they were looking at it from a swimming and water safety perspective. So everyone sort of has a different position or take on uh, the problem. And it also impacts on their perspective on what the solutions might be. And I think this is the water safety challenge or the drowning prevention challenge is we've got to recognize that our bag of tricks, um, and we all we all come to these conversations with a bag of tricks. And, and you know, Will's tricks traditionally might have been, um, you know, lifeguard service and, and all of the tools of rescue. And, and then with his public health background and experience now, he's got a bag of tricks that are around, um, you know, data and analysis and, um, and, and, and you know, you, Tizzy, you, you know, you've got a bag of tricks as well. But so the positionality sense was just when coalitions are formed, um, those initial initiating vehicles, the people that involve their leadership, bring a perspective on the problem and also probably are able to heavily influence the sorts of solutions that are the first solutions that are chosen. So the framing of the problem is incredibly important. And we should recognize that we all bring a different perspective on the problem. We kind of all come from very different perspectives and bring a different take on, on water safety. And I guess the key to whether it's a platform, whether it's a coalition, whether it's something formal like a partnership um, is, is to de design some architecture that, that um, I think focuses on, you know, the individuals and populations we're most trying to influence. Um, and, uh, you know, we all recognize we've got a bag of tricks, but collectively what's important is, uh, you know, our strategy and our, uh, our cohesion and our leadership and, and what sort of impact we have at a community level. 
I've always thought one plus one is more than two. <laughs> and you bring people together and it's definitely more than two. Your comments are so salient, I think, for so many groups in the States right now who are um, either looking at forming local partnerships or statewide groups. Um, and again, thinking for the, the U.S. National Water Safety Action Plan being released next year, what advice or guidance would you offer these groups as they come together from all of these different perspectives? Um, and for, for people listening, and, and we'll just call this out, right? I am a ocean lifeguard and a public health data nerd. Like, what advice would you offer to people like me or people in the swimming safety sector or people in coming at this from sport or recreation or government, how can we best stand on the platform together, um, yeah. acknowledging and bringing our own bag of trips, but also be ready to learn from others and advance a collective multi-sectoral agenda? Um, look, I, I mean, I think that the last bit is key here. If it's a multi-sectoral agenda, um, you kind of got to recognise that um, you, you, you're, um, you know, what you know coming into that conversation is really important, um, but the links you're able to make and, and, and how quickly you can make links to others in that uh, coalition or in that room or in that discussion, um, how quickly you can build bridges to their interests and uh, experiences, uh, the resources they bring. Um, potentially the more effective the quick the, the, the more effective you're going to be collectively at identifying the what the how um, of, of, of what needs to done to be done and what might make a difference so you know I think the people that are having a real impact in these coalitional contexts whether it's nationally or at local level um, are the people that are able to build bridges between sectors um, and, and I you know I think we misuse the word sector quite quite often but you know, the bridges might be between the lifeguards and the public health um, group. So, you know, the, the, the Hawaiian example is a really good example of those two, those two expertise, you know, the, the, um, the expertise of the ocean lifeguards um, matched with a public health expertise. They're both speaking very different languages. But in your podcast in Hawaii, it was very difficult to tell the two apart. I mean, um, you know, Ralph was, was talking a language of public health and, and you could hear... Um, you know, sort of a, a, a warmth and a, and a shared commitment. So, you know, I, I really think the people that are, are making a difference in these conversations are, are those that are able to meet in the middle of the room. Um, they're not the ones that are sitting in the, in, the, in the corners just talking to their lifeguard friends or their swimming instructor friends or their academic friends or their public health friends. Um, but those people in a room or in a conversation or in a system um, that are able to build bridges between the two, um, and so I think, you know, if you think about the, the great people, um, you know, in all of our communities, um, you know, they're the ones that are able to talk two languages and bring groups together. I think they're the ones that are having, a, you know, a huge amount of, of impact. I mean, you know, you interviewed uh, Steve, Dr. Steve Bim, he's a bridge. Um, you know, he's a bridge between his, his tremendous sort of life-saving lifeguard pedigree and his, um, his medical expertise in, in public health. Um, David Walker is a bridge. Um, he's a bridge between the injury prevention science. So most of his day job is not water safety. It involves road traffic and, and child safety. And he's bridging to water safety and finding links across the traditional water safety sector across the UK to create some, some great energy. And, you know, Tizzy, you've been a, you, you know, you've been a wonderful bridge. Lena Kwan is a bridge. Um, if you think about Dr. Dr. Kwan, you know, she's got that tremendous grounding in, in public health, 
Um, and, and, you know, she's certainly led the way in terms of recognising um, that, you know, water safety is not about Speedo-wearing swimmers. It's actually about the people who don't wear Speedos and can't yet swim, come from cultural backgrounds that are, you know, not don't have the water prowess that so many of us in the conversation, uh, you know, hold dear to our heart. Yeah. That bridge building aspect is so key to leadership. And we clearly heard about leadership and leadership structures in these interviews and where each of the people that we spoke to saw themselves in that role and also in thinking about the way the, the leadership aspect of these coalitions, whether it was a committee or a person or all of those pieces that create leadership. And um, Justin, can you uh, talk about what reflections you have from listening to these interviews and from your own, um, all the work that you've done and your own experiences? Um, yeah, look, there were, there were some really great examples of, um, of, of leadership, like there were some really strong individuals um, in, uh, and I'm, I'm struggling for, for names, whether it was Arizona or perhaps Florida, but just this idea that there were already these community coalitions, lots of little leaders at a community level, probably with, uh, you know, with great passion and interests and, you know, probably ego, I don't know, but, um, and that somehow this coalition had been successful in bringing those groups together, lots of little leadership cells. So, you know, I think sometimes, um, you know, people have a, uh, you know, a false assumption that, you know, the leadership is up and you look at the top of the triangle and there's the leader, but actually the, you know, community leadership is probably, um, you know, an organisational leadership is, is, you know, I mean, leaders within organisations that are prepared to accept their organisation will not have all the answers. Um, one plus one, is it? They'll, they'll be stronger by forming links with others. That sort of humility and leadership, I think, is is really important when we're talking about water safety because you know let's let's be frank like individually um, as organizations we have strong strong passion that we you know a, a, and a great strong conviction that we know the answer and we know the solution and we've been you know organizations like YMCA and um, you know surf life saving in Australia Royal Life Saving in Australia the Swim Teachers Association we have strong conviction that we have we know the problem and we know the answers. Um, but the sorts of leadership I think is important in, in coalition building is, is, is those leaders that recognise perhaps they don't have all of the answers nor all of the solutions. Um, but what's more important is that the group comes up with a shared understanding of the problem um, and some suggestions on, on the solution. I, I did think, I mean, I, one of the great challenges of leadership, of course, is, is knowing when to step back and step away. Um, and I, and I, I do think it was probably Arizona where the initiate, Texas maybe, where the initiation of that coalition um, was described as a, as a, as a, a I think it was uh, Texas, but if it wasn't, it was one of the others, a wonderful woman, um, uh, you know, from a swim teacher background that had initiated a coalition, but got to a certain point, recognised that she needed to step back in order to, for it to, to grow and, and, and prosper. And, you know, I think there are a couple of examples where the coalition was nested within a particular organisation that didn't have the organisational energy and resources or there'd been a leadership change um, and therefore the coalition secretariat needed to move and adapt to somewhere else. So, you know, I, I think when I think of individual, when I think of leadership, you've got, you can't look past the individuals that are critical to making these things happen. Um, you've got to look at the sort of the, the small L leadership 
um, that's, that's constantly working to make it successful, to bind groups together. Um, and then, of course, we've got to be confident enough to step away and, and watch these things grow because, in some respects, leadership can be stifling uh, to a coalition and, and recognising when it's stifling. Um, you know, I think that's sort of key to, to navigating the sort of adaptive uh, requirements, particularly everyone talked about COVID impacts and Zoom and everyone, someone said the F word, funding, everyone was worried about how, where do you get money and how do you make this happen? So um, these co coalitions, we're not talking about Bill Gates here. Uh, and that, you know, his, his form of, of global partnerships. Um, we're, we're talking about low resource, everyone leaning in with their volunteer effort and energy. Um, and so I think it's really important that we have a shared sense of, of leadership rather than this sort of top-down approach. So to that end, I'm wondering if you can share with us some reflections on architecture and structure of how these groups operate, because in the interviews, we, we saw eight different examples of how these partnerships happen. Um, in your experience, you know, in Australia and, and globally, you've probably seen a hundred different ways that these groups are organized. Um, earlier in one of your answers, you commented on how important architecture was to facilitate some of that multi-sectoral collaboration. I'm very curious for your thoughts on architecture, structure, governance. Yeah, like if, if you listen to all of the podcasts, if we, we listen to, you know, presentations at World Conference on Drowning Prevention, um, everyone, everyone is trying to influence government at some level. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, whether it's the water safety people, they want some, some funding for lessons to be compulsory, whether it's the public health types, you're talking about system change. Um, and so we're, we're all sort of influencing government. But coalitions can, can often... Um, initiate and be successful just as an NGO vehicle um, that that's actually has significant um, distance from government. Government might sit in some context at some tables. Um, um, but but my, my sense is the ones that are, that are generating traction at the moment, particularly with the UN resolution that puts a little bit of pressure on governments, hopefully, to get organised, um, they're, they're the ones in the middle that, that are successful in getting government, not just to the table, um, but to validate that there needs to be a table, there needs a strategy, there needs a plan. And when they're at the table, they're bringing some energy and some resources and some confirmation that um, the issue is important and needs to be addressed. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do think that um, there were some really good examples of NGOs working together, very much focused on, on local mobilization, lots of events, lots of education, education, education. Um, and then you, you've got some examples that were very much focused on the table being about the system and influencing the system, changing policy, measuring impacts at a system level. Um, so, uh, you know, you, and actually it's interesting because you know, the US is probably a little bit similar to Australia and, and the UK for that matter, Canada, um, where the NGOs have enough, um, enough capacity to get on and create energy and opportunity. And in some respects, we can do most of this without government. But if we ultimately want to impact at a system level, we've got to draw government into the table. Um, the other thing on architecture that I, 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 I'm interested in, I'm really watching closely, um, one of the um, 
I guess one of the instincts of a small group sitting around a table to say, how do we make this happen? Um, you know, one of, the, one of the right things is to say, well, it's got to be inclusive and we've got to invite anyone who wants to be involved. Um, and I think sometimes the room's too big. Um, it takes a lot of energy to coordinate um, partnerships, uh, coalitions, a lot of energy. Um, and so sometimes I, I, I fear that we fill the room with too many groups and you spend too much energy coordinating the groups and not enough energy on getting things done. So most of these coalitions influence a lot, but control very little. Um, it's logical that you've got to navigate some key players to the table or to the platform. Um, but I just fear sometimes that, um, you know, we overwhelm by being too consultative. And, and so, um, you, know, uh, you know, separating decision-making from consultation, I think is important. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the failures in the Australian water safety strategy, if I can talk about failures, is we, we control very little. It's very much, um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a document, a framework of influence. Um, and in that consultation process each year, we, sorry, each cycle, we determine that we're going to be more focused. We're really going to drill down on the things that will make a difference. And we initiate our process. Uh, we send an invitation far and wide. We get lots of views and, and interests and research into the process. And then at the end of it, we have a lot of trouble sorting back down into those three or four priorities. And we end up with 15. Um, and so we go inclusive. We include everyone's views. We do a little bit of filtering of those views. We develop a plan, um, but it's largely too broad. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, do, I do think it's interesting in an architecture level of where's the sweet spot between um, having the right people in the right room at the right time, um, but also signaling to the broader sector that, um, you know, what you're, what you're initiating is something that's ultimately going to empower, collect and harness their energies as well. Wow, there's a lot there. And you really pulled forward some of the, the big challenges around how big, how small, how broad, how narrow. Um, you also used the term plan and you talked about plan early on and wondered about your thoughts related to plan versus strategy versus vision and and to continue to keep weaving in, how do you figure out who needs to be closely at the table without leaving anybody out where they feel like, wait, why am I going to help? Because you didn't want me at the table. You know, just again, I, I think that if we keep kind of pulling that thread as well around how you make from plan and strategy and vision happen, where you actually make something happen and have the right people there to do it yeah like I, I mean I think in one of your podcasts it, it might have been the Great Lakes um, most water safety groups when they get together and they say let's have a vision um, it ends up being a, um, a, a world free from drowning a California free from drowning zero drowning you know I think everyone agrees that we're all trying to reduce and eliminate drowning so um, the vision part I think is um, is is um, very common across the globe um, it's sort of the, 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 I guess, the tactics that come next that matter most and, 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 and asking yourself whether the coalition is about uh, control or influence, or, you know, tactics or, or, or mobilisation. And I, and I think that's kind of a, you know, that's a discussion about, um, about um, 
about the resources and the capacity of the initiative, right? So the, the, the Australian Water Safety Strategy started as a plan um, and it, it had lots of columns with this person will do this and this organisation will do that and this, you know, this thing will be achieved within two years. Um, and at the end of the review of that, um, it was pretty difficult to track because actually the power to implement those plans, those activities, was not the Water Safety Council or the Water Safety Strategy. Many of those activities were nested in the plans of others. Um, and so the next set of tactics in 2008, we shifted from plan to strategy, putting forward an, an architecture of all of the key areas where activity, action, influence, change needs to happen. Um, and so um, the Australian Water Safety Strategy now has 15 areas where we think that change needs to occur. We describe that change. We signal the sorts of in the indicators and, and uh, actions that will add value to the overarching strategy, but it doesn't delegate those tasks to anyone. Um, because, and that's twofold, right? Once you start delegating, um, you, you create some responsibility, you start to get into the argy-bargy of who does what and how. Um, and and the, the Water Safety Council has no resources. So um, we've deliberately chosen um, a, an approach, which is to create a framework. This sort of says, this is what needs to happen. Um, and then in other places, we work out how that happens and who does it. So in the case of the Australian Water Safety Strategy, what it's trying to do is influence the plans of others. Tizzy, if I can um, make that a little bit more tangible. So it's not a plan itself, but it's it's kind of signals some some uh, some important areas, some science, some activities, some prioritisation. Um, but the ultimate measure of that strategy will be whether or not Royal Life Saving embeds those activities into its plans or whether the state government of Victoria actually develops a strategy and a plan and aligns that to the, to the framework that's signalled by the strategy. Um, and I, I suspect that it probably can... Uh, it really depends on what sort of resources you've got and whether you have that mobilising capacity. Then if you have that, have a plan. Um, if you don't have that and you're actually trying to influence others, um, then I would skew towards the strategy side. Build a framework that says this needs to happen. Um, let's focus on what needs to happen, not necessarily how it happens, and move your plan downstream a little bit because um, the ultimate sort of measure of success, I mean, you know, drowning happens at a, a community level. So the action needs to be in many cases at a community level. And so, you know, our strategy is going to need to mobilise people and activate them, motivate them locally, you know, where we're not trying to influence government at a policy level, of course. This perspective is interesting because we have heard a lot about plans and those working in water safety in the US are going to be hearing a lot more about plans in the coming six, eight, 10, 12 months. Um, the, the framing that you've provided of a strategy um, and the purpose of that strategy being to influence others, other groups and people's plans is I think a different perspective than what we've heard. So it is helpful, thank you. I like, I like to the, that feeling of ownership, you know, back to how you engage and how everyone is part of the solution. This strategy around um, how, how it fits within others' plans that really helps to build ownership and accountability and engagement 
and multiple places versus it centralizing out of this one place. And then it's like, hey, I have my own goals and objectives within my organization. I only have so much time for this versus it being a part of your work as well. Yeah, I, I think that's really important, particularly in a, in a, in a multi-stakeholder model where you've got um, where you've got sort of NGOs and government and um, and uh, you know counties and the like. I, I think there are so many layers of, in the planning process all the way through those organisations that the best you can hope for really is to influence influence others. And so you know, so make that tangible though. If you, we've got an Australian water safety strategy, um, our, our vision is that the local swim school can align its commitments and activities to the Australian water safety strategy. Um, or the, the local council, um, you know, they, they can adopt this sort of perspective on reducing drowning. And, and for us, it, we, you know, our drowning rates are, um, are tragic, but they're, you know, they're incredibly low by world standards, right? Um, and so we're pivoting to the promotion of a love of water, you know, and that's that definitional issue between drowning prevention or water safety, you know, what, you know, you know some of the, the groups like, um, uh, the Great Lakes were talking about tourism and the tourism sector um, not wanting to talk about drowning initially because it might discourage people from coming to the Great Lakes, but actually realising the potential. Uh, Hawaii was talking about this as well in terms of sector. So we're pivoting to um, promote getting people wet and enjoying the water, enjoying those recreational activities, but just providing some sort of some, some risk measures that may well keep people more safely. Um, I, I think the other thing that's challenging, um, so that the, the community mobilization and the influence of local actions, I think that's a great space for all of us to play in. Um, the other area is upstream and just working out um, if, 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 the, if the ultimate objective here is to influence government, um, what we're seeing in Australia, what we're seeing globally is um, that there is no one ministry for drowning prevention or water safety for that matter. Um, and so this is a real problem, whether you're working globally, nationally, provincially, uh, locally, probably. Maybe it's, maybe it's clearer locally. I, I don't know yet. But it's like, where does it sit within government? Um, and remembering that um, government is sectoral as well. Like each arm of government has a different codification, a different language, a different speak, a different set of priorities, um, a different minister that has their own sort of values and perspectives. So... Um, uncoding, sort of, you know, unpacking that language of drowning prevention and linking it um, into a, a ministry. So, you know, if you run around the globe, um, you know, there, there's a big push with World Health Organization to make this a public health issue. Um, but actually, when you look at who's driving drowning prevention outcomes at a national level and those governments that are mobilizing, um, you know, so yeah, Thailand is very much public health. It's linked to their public health strategy. Um, in Vietnam, it's, a, it's a, um, a ministerial panel that's led from the perspective of social development and welfare. Um, if you listen to uh, Olive Kubasini in Uganda, um, you know, it's, it's transport and it's agriculture um, that are coming together. So, um, so I think we've kind of got to work out when your coalitions sit and ponder and look up at government architecture and work out how do you, how do you get them, those people over there, to do the sorts of things we want them to do. Um, I think it's tremendously challenging to work out which door to knock on and what language to use. And, you know, and I think that's important in the coalition is that you've got a diverse stakeholder group. It might be that you've got a good in to injury prevention because you've got the public health types at the table. Um, it's important to have 
um, you know, uh, the, the lifeguards, maybe I think the Hawaii example was usually they interface with the fire brigade, but the transformation there was because they were all of a sudden nested in the EMS, which gave them a more direct route to data and the like. So, um, you know, so I, I do think that um, influencing down, um, influencing up in a sense is, is just as important. So this is bringing our conversation, I think, full circle, because in the very beginning, we talked about a platform for drowning prevention. And one of the things, two things you said, you said, one, there needs to be enough room on the platform for everybody that's currently working. There also needs to be enough room for those who aren't working in this space yet. And the other thing that you said was, um, you know, building bridges. And you gave some great examples of building bridges between kind of what we think as a traditional water safety spaces. But there's also this whole element of building bridges to those sectors or those parts of government that don't even know that they're aligned with water safety yet. And um, we had we heard several great examples in the interviews of um, people discussing, you know, uh, speaking the language of climate change or speaking the language of disaster risk reduction or or health promotion or sport development. Right. There's so many avenues and ways to to approach this. So as people are thinking about partnership and this whole idea of multi-sectoral partnership together, um, you know, is there anything else you want to add or any further guidance that you would offer to somebody listening to this, potentially leading, potentially participating, potentially thinking about participating in a group of people moving forward for drowning prevention water safety that doesn't necessarily look only like them? What advice or final thoughts would you offer? Uh, like I think be realistic. I think this is easier in a high income recreational setting than it is in um, leading agendas in, in, in places with much higher drowning rates, but no uh, system capacity for it. So, um, so, I, so I think it's less of a problem in Australia or probably in the US in terms of casting a broad vision about all of the possible groups that could come to the table. Um, my, my, my inclination is, um, uh, these things will still be built around those who feel a day-to-day -day passion for reducing drowning. Um, and it's just that they then need to bridge to those groups that they think can spend a good deal of their time, effort and energy to make that mission, mission or vision or the plan come to fruition. Um, change is kind of best done in small doses unless you've kind of got some sort of transformative event and activity that is a great catalyst for significant leapfrogs. But in a water safety sense, the change is likely to be incremental. Um, and so focusing on those small steps and those groups that are uh, where there's a plausibility that they could believe, be involved, make a difference, start there. Um, rather than filling the room with everyone. Like I think this, we have the, we, we drown ourselves in consultation if you cast too broad a net in the first instance. So, you know, um, you know, talk about tactics, you know, start, start, start small, establish a core, make sure that your core fully understands that the objective here um, is not building an empire, it's not building a new organization, but it's actually to grow the core. Um, but you know, I, I think one of the one of the underlying final sort of thing, it's all different. They're all different, they're all energetic, they're all passionate. Um, they're full of committed people doing wonderful things. Um, there is no expert in the room in any case. Like, there's no one way to do this. It, it's multi-sectoral. It's all going to be different. Um, it's, it's, it's more art than science. Um, 
and uh, and beware of the person that stands in the room calling themselves an expert because um, you know this is art. This is sort of navigation, really. There, there's no one way to do this. I think um, all power to you if you've got the energy to pull groups together, um, to to motivate them and stimulate them with podcasts like the ones you've been doing, to give them the, the right data at the right time, um, and uh, and you know get it get it moving and see what emerges. Thank you so much, Justin. This has been an incredibly rich conversation. And just like with all of our interviews, we feel like we could go, we could just be continuing this conversation for the rest of the day and onward from there. Like you said, we're all learning and every little piece that we um, take away is another opportunity to grow and to um, learn from each other and keep getting better in this work. All right, Justin. Well, thanks so much again for your time. We're grateful for you and um, for your reflections on, on this project and your really salient remarks on how we can do partnership well together. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Tizzy. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Will.